Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Jess. She is a current PhD student. She's a podcast host, just an interesting person all around. So I'm excited to get to know her and hear what she's got to talk about. So Jess, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you so much for that awesome introduction already. Um, Wow, where do I begin? (laughs) So uh, I was born in uh, on the East Coast in Alexandria, Virginia. Now I won't go that far back, (laughs) but um, I am uh, born and raised in the U.S. and I am currently 24 years old. I uh, have spent my life pursuing many various interests, um, some of which we'll probably dive into pretty deeply today. But uh, some of those interests include computer science, which I uh, got a bachelor's degree in in California. And other miscellaneous interests include yoga. I am a trained certified yoga teacher, and I have taught in a few different countries around the world. Um, I also love to travel. That was a part of why I was able to teach yoga outside of the U.S. I recently, as of a year ago, became a trained paragliding pilot. So that's also a side passion of mine. And other than that, I am an avid dancer and uh, outdoor enthusiast, the typical things that people like to put in their bios to make them sound interesting and human, you name it. Uh, But right now I am a PhD student at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I'm pursuing a PhD in information science. Don't ask me what that is. Nobody in information science actually knows what it is. (laughs) No, just kidding. We can can talk about what that is too. Um, And I'm currently researching what I call AI ethics which also is a an incredibly broad term that has a million different meanings. So we can also get into that. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing right now. That's where I'm at. Awesome. It sounds like you've got a lot of things going on with so many, in so many different directions too. So why don't we start kind of with the, the education, the computer science and information science what interested you about those fields? Oh, well, let's see. I, uh, I have to admit that I was never actually intrinsically interested in computer science. I have to attribute the interest to my oldest brother. I have two older brothers, and my oldest brother, his name is Wesley. He was one of those stereotypical computer science Uh, engineers who posts up in their room on the weekends and learns how to code ridiculous things by the time they're like out of middle school. He was that person. And when I was in high school and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I was really interested in totally random things. Like uh, I wanted to go into psychology or I wanted to be a music teacher for high schoolers. I, I wanted to be like just things that made me happy and passionate without really thinking about what a career would really look like. And then my brother was telling me that computer science was actually a really lucrative career that could be like financially uh, and just, I guess, uh, 
yeah, most, mostly just financially a really like nice, um, a really nice option to have. And that was something that was like a possibility for me because when I was a senior in high school, they offered an AP computer science, like an advanced computer science course. And it was the first time they'd offered any sort of computer science course in the high school. It was because of my brother, actually, that they started offering that. And so I took it and I hated it with a burning passion. I absolutely hated it. It did not make any sense to me. I was so bad at it. I uh, walked out of the AP test halfway through because I was so frustrated. And then I was given an opportunity to take it again. And the second time I just like, I didn't even want to look at the results. I was so frustrated by computer science. And so uh, you might be asking me then, why did you pursue it as a career? (laughs) Great question. Um, It was because I, even though it frustrated me, I am the kind of person who really enjoys being challenged in that way. And I think the fact that I I wasn't able to understand it immediately was something that both frustrated me and like energized me. And so uh, I did decide to pursue it as a degree in college. And um, that frustration did not go away for a little while. The first two years of uh, my undergrad were very, very, very hard, especially being um, one of very few women in my program. And uh, we can talk a little bit about that, too, because it was a very unique experience. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad I persisted because by the time I graduated, I actually really, really enjoyed computer science. And I found that there were specific parts of it that really resonated with me. And, and one of those parts was data science and machine learning and AI and thinking through the ways that technology interacts with humans and the ways that humans interact with technology and and what the impacts of those interactions are on our world and that's that's what landed me where I am today. Cool. Now, can you talk a little bit about AI ethics and what what all of this means? Yes. So, AI ethics is basically its own field at this point. It emerged not too long ago. People have definitely been talking about the impact that technology has on society for quite a while. There's a lot of different disciplines like um, human-computer interaction, HCI is what it's usually known as, or like socio-technical theories. There's a lot of different disciplines like policy, even mathematics, social sciences, computer science. There's a lot of different disciplines that have talked about technology's impact on society, but it wasn't until probably the last decade or so where people really started to think critically about AI and AI's impact on all of us. And um, it's interesting because there's there's usually two narratives that, uh, that AI embodies in larger society and with the general population. And one of those is this like utopic visualization of our future and that AI and robots will solve all of our problems and that we can just exist as happy, creative humans in this bubble where we don't have to have any sort of labor force because robots have taken over the world and taken over our our workplace in a positive way and where we don't have to worry about getting food because it's all made sustainably by AI and we've figured out everything that we've needed to figure out as humans because the robots did it for us. So that's like the utopia and then there, the other side is this dystopia where like Terminator fantasies, basically, where AI is unintentionally created to solve like a very small um, 
specific problem and then that AI is connected to the internet or just learns on its own about humans and decides that we are an inferior species and just like we have done with animals and other human species in the past, the AI just decides to wipe us out and uh, make the, the world and the universe that it knows that it can create in a better way without those pesky humans in the way. And so AI ethics basically, um, it interrogates both of those narratives and says, okay, well, AI is definitely not an amazing force in our world. There's a lot of problems that we need to address with AI, most of which are actually social problems that we have not found solutions for yet, like sexism and racism and discrimination and bias. And we need to address those problems at a societal level before we even create technologies that attempt to address them. And then it knocks down the dystopic narratives by saying, okay, AI is here, it's happening, it's it's going to be here in our future. And so we need to do whatever we can to be actionable and intentional with our technologies to make sure that it doesn't kill off humans. I'm gonna use like air quotes, to make sure that it doesn't kill off um, all, all of humanity with uh, unintentional consequences of tech that we couldn't have ever imagined ahead of time. So the discipline of AI ethics is tackling a lot of really, really complex issues with this mindset that we still have to do something. So it's, it's partially theoretical and partially theorizing about what we can do and what we should and shouldn't do, but it takes that theorizing into action and says, okay, here's what we can do with it, and here's how we design and create technologies with those ideas in mind. It sounds so fascinating and something I would be so bad at, but also is it's just like so interesting when when you get into the reality of the situation, like you said, you know, AI is here. So can you talk a little bit then about, you know, an undergrad, you were one of very few women in your program and what the gender balance is like when you talk about computer science? Yes, computer science and gender balance it is a problem. It's a huge problem. And it's interesting because um, women kind of founded computer science. You have people like uh, Ada Lovelace, who were like some of the most impressive theoreticians of computer science before the com first computer was ever made. And she wasn't given credit for the work that she did for the discipline until way after she passed away. And then you have people like Grace Hopper who discovered the first bug in a computer and made huge contributions to the field. And she also was not recognized for her work. And a lot of women were really, really crucial to the beginning of using computers when World War II broke out and when women were kind of flocking into the workforce to fill the absences of the men who were leaving to go to war. And then when women were kind of kicked out of the computer workforce as men returned, it was almost like this forgotten generation of women computer scientists. It's like everybody forgot that like women were so crucial to the beginning of this discipline. And for a while, if you look at the numbers of women who are enrolled in computer science programs in college, it was actually not too bad. Like, I don't think I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure it wasn't ever split 50-50, but at one point it was actually rising pretty steadily and women were slowly becoming more, it was becoming more and more common for women to be computer scientists. And then all of a sudden in um, the 80s, like late 80s, 
the numbers just started dropping again, just like rapidly dropping. And unfortunately, it's like this feedback loop effect. The less women that there are in the discipline, the less women that are going to join the discipline or at least stay in the discipline because it's really hard being the odd one out in a room of people that are so, so different from you. And I've definitely experienced that. I, there's been a few classes in my undergrad where I was the only woman in the classroom of um, 40 or so people, uh, even more times where I was one of two or three in a class of anywhere between 30 to 60 people. And it definitely impacted the way that I thought of myself as a computer scientist. It impacted the work that I did. Uh, it gave me huge imposter syndrome and made me feel like I constantly had to prove myself, like almost like everything that I said in class or every question that I asked or everything that I did or created or every grade that I got was like representative of my gender, which made me feel like so much pressure to perform well as a female computer scientist and probably made me do way worse because of the ridiculous amount of pressure that I placed on myself. Um, I do have a, an interesting story, though, that I, I think is probably like really telling of why it's so important to get more women in computer science. Um, when I was a fourth year in my undergrad program, I was in a UX design class. And this was the most women I've ever seen in a computer science course out of all of the courses that I took. I think it was probably about one third, maybe a little bit more than one third of the class was women. And we had a class project where we split off into groups um, to create some sort of technology or designed some sort of technology. And I was placed in a group of all women with the exception of one man. And um, it was really, really fascinating seeing the kinds of ideas that our group came up with as opposed to the ideas that the other groups came up with that were majority men because we ended up designing a platform that was an anonymous sexual assault um, submission form where people who had experienced sexual assault could submit that it happened and get resources for it without having to identify who they were. And I was thinking at the time when we were creating this that if this was a group of six men instead of five women and one man, I feel like there is such a low likelihood that they would have thought to create a technology like that. And if you take that that thought and you expand it into all of technology design, like imagine if Facebook and Instagram and Google and Apple were all run by women from the beginning. I just I wonder how they would be different and the kinds of problems they would be interested in solving, how those would be different and um I am very biased, so I would I would think that it would probably be different in a positive way, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, and that's a great story to just even show like, hey, this is what we came up with and it's completely different than everybody else. And to be able to have that experience in your fourth year after repeatedly being one or one of few in a, in a classroom full of men had to have been a much better experience. Oh, yeah. So then what has it been like in your PhD program? Is it still that imbalance that you were seeing in undergrad? No, no, it's actually been really incredible. In, uh, joining an information science program made a huge difference instead of joining a computer science program, because I know 
at the PhD level, especially, there's still huge, huge uh, gender gaps for computer science programs. But in my program, I think there are actually more women than men. And that has made such a difference in the way that the program is run, the way that um, the way that people interact during meetings, the way that the students interact with one another, way, the way that I collaborate with peers on projects. It is wildly different. And, and it's interesting because I'm also in a computer science, I'm in two labs for my PhD, and one of them's more like a social science type of lab where we don't really discuss algorithms, and the other is a very traditional like computer science lab. And even just seeing like the difference in the ways that people interact with each other in those two spaces, I feel like in the computer science lab, I'm looking at I'm looking at my experience in my undergrad when I'm in that lab and when I'm in this like social science space and there's almost all women in that space, the way that we talk about solving problems and the way that we support each other just feels very, very different. And again, I'm speaking as a woman, so I don't know if like a, a man would feel as welcome in that space. Like maybe it's an op equal and opposite kind of problem there. I'm not sure. But but from my perspective, it's definitely like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> so what is the difference between computer computer science and information science? Yes, I'm glad you asked. So I am going to pull up this <laughs> quote because um, I, I have had to, I've saved this because I've had um, a lot of people ask me what information science is. And in the first year of my PhD, I could not answer them for the life of me. And I even went and asked my advisors at one point uh, because I was interviewing or being interviewed for another podcast. And they asked me what information science was and I still couldn't tell them. And so I went up to both of my advisors and I asked them if they could define it for me. And both of them said they didn't know. So we kind of spent like 30 minutes brainstorming and figuring out a good definition that, that was shareable. Um, and I'm, I'm going to read off this definition. This is credit to Amy Coe, who is uh, a really amazing scholar in this space. And she wrote a blog post about this where she defined information science. And she said, quote, you know all the data in the world. Information science studies it where it comes from, how it's biased, how it informs people, how it shapes decisions, and how to create systems, both software and otherwise, to help people create, store, analyze, and share it. From cradle to grave, information changes lives, and we both study and invent new ways for it to do this. So um, it it's honestly very broad and very interdisciplinary, so I don't think that that definition fully encapsulates it, but but maybe that helps give a, a better idea of how it takes this like social perspective of technology and, and information and data. And computer science can also do that as a discipline. There's definitely like subfields within computer science that focus on that, um, that largely interface with disciplines like information science. But in my experience, I would say computer science is much more focusing on the how of how we build things, and information science seems to focus much more on the why we are building things. Very interesting, like looking at kind of one thing and comparing how versus why, and it is very different. So if you're good with leaving the technology world <laughs> and switching over to the fun stuff that you do... I want to hear about being a yoga teacher like across the world. Yeah, definitely. So um, I was trained to teach yoga in Thailand um, amongst 
I think it was 30 other people at this amazing school. And I I was originally at the time deciding if I wanted to go to grad school. I was basically 50% leaning towards going to grad school, 50% leaning towards just leaving everything behind, living out of a backpack, and then teaching yoga uh, while traveling for the rest of my life. <laughs> and um, I, for a while there, I really did not know which I was going to pick. Um, but when I was in Thailand, I decided that I wanted to travel for about six months after I left to just see where I could teach in order to save money while traveling. And I ended up finding a few different places where I was able to teach for free food and board. And uh, that was actually all of them were in um, Colombia. I did teach in a few places in Thailand, but I ended up landing in Colombia and South America. And oh my gosh, I have such a love for Colombia. It is my favorite place in the world. Uh, it, it's honestly incredible. <laughs> and I, I ended up actually teaching um, for the first few months that I was there. I was teaching yoga for children before I was teaching it for adults. And that was such an amazing experience. Um, yeah, kids are kids are so great. I actually, it's funny because I, I didn't really like kids going into that experience. But then after teaching yoga to them, I have a newfound appreciation and love for children, especially how like moldable and curious their minds are. And that was just so eye-opening, especially because I was teaching in Spanish, um, which I was still learning at the time. And so there was like a lot of stuff that got lost in translation um, but I, I slowly did learn the vocabulary of the body and of the, the actions that the body can take. And that helped a lot. Um, and then I ended up landing in. So that was in northern Colombia where I was teaching the children. And then I uh, lived in Bogota, which is the capital of Colombia, for a little while. And I uh, also taught children there a little bit less yoga and a little bit more just English. I was living in a preschool and that was also just such a fascinating experience. Um, and after I left Bogota, I ended up going to Santiago de Cali, which is right on the Pacific coast. It's on the west coast of Colombia. And that's where I landed for the bulk of my time there. I ended up teaching yoga. Um, this time it was to tourists. So it was in English again. And um, that was just that was just a fun experience. Definitely less uh, challenging than learning how to teach yoga in Spanish when I was living on on a biological reserve in the mountains of northern Colombia. But all in all, it was just absolutely amazing. And uh, I have yet to teach official yoga classes in the United States. I've taught a few for friends and family, but I'm hoping maybe when the PhD struggle dies down a little bit to teach yoga <laughs> in the U.S., yeah. So what was uh, Columbia like, you know, outside of teaching yoga compared to life even in Thailand or you've you've been multiple places in the U.S. as well? Yeah, it was incredibly eye opening. I learned more in my time in Columbia than I've learned, honestly, through many, many times in my life combined. <laughs> um, I was incredibly humbled by Colombia. I I would compare my time in Colombia and Thailand. They were very, very different. Um, my time in Thailand was much more touristic. I was, I was being a tourist. I wasn't working. I was just spending money and I was only hanging out with foreigners. 
And also I didn't speak Thai. I spoke very, very minimal Thai. So I wasn't really interacting with locals outside of, um, you know, the market and and buying things and exchanging things. Um, but when I was in Colombia, because I was learning Spanish and was eventually able to communicate in Spanish, I was actually able to to get to know people who lived there and hear people's stories and stay with people who lived there and find a little community there. And that made all the difference because um, it felt much less like I was a tourist or a foreigner just coming in and doing what tourists do and bastardizing a culture. And, and I felt much more like I was trying to take a back seat and just listen and learn. And um, I think the most the most difficult experience was the most challenging, I should say, was when I was working as a volunteer on a biological reserve in the uh, mountains of uh, northern Colombia, up in the the Andes. We um, we were working on a reserve with about a dozen other people, and I was for a little while there the only foreigner, and I was basically the only person who spoke English. And this was when I first landed in Colombia when my Spanish was not great. So uh, that was the first challenge. Um, other challenges included a lot of bug infestations that I will not get to on this podcast because they are very gross and not, not fun to hear about. But um, the most challenging of everything was developing a relationship with these children that I was teaching yoga to because they lived about a mile down the road from the reserve that I was working on. And um, just to give kind of like a visualization of what this place was like, it was in uh, what's called Paso del Mango. And it's this tiny little um, village type community at the top of the mountains where there's very, very few people, um, dirt roads, so much foliage. Most people live on little like fincas, little farms. They grow their own food. They exchange food and items with each other because the closest town is pretty far away and kind of difficult to get to sometimes. And uh, a lot of people don't have Wi-Fi or cell phones. They kind of just live very um, minimally and they're very connected to the earth. And um, when I was teaching in this classroom, it was a very, very small classroom, like honestly the size of the bedroom that I'm sitting in right now, which is maybe like 20 feet by, it was okay, a little bit bigger than this bedroom, but like the classroom was maybe like 20 feet by 30 feet. And it was their K through 12 school. So all of the kids that were there were ranging from two years old to 15 years old. Uh, there were about 20 of them. And they had one teacher who taught them all at the same time every day. So the type of education that they were getting was very, very different from anything I've ever seen in the U.S. Because imagine trying to teach something like math to a, a two-year-old and a 15-year-old at the same time. It's a, it's a challenge. And it didn't help that the teacher was also not really present for them or attempting or, or trying to, to give them a really thoughtful education. And so there were definitely some issues I saw with um with the the school in general and and the way that the students were being taught and it it was very difficult for me to go into that and to experience that and to see what those children were experiencing as they were growing up and, and being educated um and then to bond with them and to to form that connection with them and then 
when it was my time to go to just say goodbye and to leave knowing that so many of the people that were in that classroom and their parents that um, were in that village were possibly never going to leave ever. And that was that was probably the most internally conflicted I felt in my life where I felt just like utterly helpless about my own privilege. And I felt I felt very, very uh, I can't even really think of a word for it besides just like heartbroken about the fact that I was able to leave and that so many people wouldn't be able to leave. And um, I had to really reckon with myself in my head to to not beat myself up for the things that I know that I can't change. So I, I know that I can't change what I was born into and I can't change what other people were born into. I can only change what I do with that. But it still felt wrong. And this was one of the first times that I was really ever put face to face with an experience that like brought to light my intense amount of privilege. And so that was kind of uh, like a focus for the rest of my time in Colombia was for me to continue to challenge that and to see what I could do with my privilege to maybe try to, to understand communities more and to see if there was anything that I was able to give back without just bastardizing culture and assuming that I can provide solutions to, to people that I don't even know. And um, yeah, it was, wow, such, such an eye-opening experience for me. And I, I still have a hard time thinking about that time and even just verbalizing it. This is the first time I've even really spoken about it um, since it happened a few years ago. And it, it impacted my life very deeply. It sounds like it. And I can only imagine kind of that gut-wrenching feeling of of moving on and knowing that it was that time. So then why did you end up leaving Columbia? I left to go to grad school, <laughs> unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess also, Um yeah, at the time when I had left to go to Columbia, I had already accepted my offer to go to grad school. So I always knew that I was going to be leaving. Uh, that didn't make it any easier. <laughs> but I, if I hadn't accepted my offer for grad school, I, I definitely would have stayed. And um, actually, my, my oldest brother, Wesley, the one who got me in, um, involved in computer science, he came and visited me and left the country, left the U.S. for the very, very first time to come visit me uh, for the last two weeks that I was in Colombia. And he fell in love with it just as much as I did. And he moved there <laughs> like a week later. Uh, he just impulsively packed up all of his things in L.A. and he moved to Colombia and he still lives there. So he uh, still has deep roots with the community that I uh I started to get to know a few years ago and I go visit him on occasion just to remember the good old times. But yeah, it's a, I'm actually very lucky that, that he chose to move there because I would absolutely have loved to stay in Colombia if I could have. And I'm sure at some point I will go back for a longer period of time because I definitely feel called to, to stay there for longer and to be there for longer. That's great that he did that. So convenient. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any idea what you want to do when you are done with your PhD program? Oh, the golden question. I I definitely could not say confidently that I do know. I, I have <laughs> ideas. Um, 
I I like to joke that I'll either go uh, into industry, into academia, or I'll just go drop everything and travel and become a yoga teacher again and just forget all the work that I've put in the last five years. Uh, I think that one's probably less likely because I that would be kind of a waste of the time and effort that I'm putting in right now. But um, most likely I'll, I'll probably end up either as a professor in academia or as a researcher in uh, the tech industry, maybe for a larger tech company or like maybe a consultant for a, for smaller companies. And it, it kind of just depends on what what is calling me the most. This summer I have a, an internship doing research for Microsoft for the tech industry. So I'll be experiencing what that's like for the first time as a researcher and seeing if that's actually a path that makes sense for me that I'll like. Uh, and if it's not, then academia will be calling my name. <laughs> that is so exciting. I, th I think as someone who's obviously not in the tech industry to be like, I'm interning at Microsoft. How, how did you end up getting that position? Thanks. Um, yeah, I actually, uh, I, I ended up getting this position probably mostly through networking. Although I would say um, a lot of it was hard work combined with serendipity. <laughs> and for context, this is like my dream internship. This is my dream job with my dream team that I have been idolizing for years since I first decided to go into this field. And I will be working with what I call my academic heroes because they are people that I just never even dreamed that I could even talk to, let alone work with. So I'm I'm feeling super fortunate and grateful for this opportunity. Um, and it's it's kind of, it, it feels very full circle to be working on this team because um, I realized that three years ago when I was first planning on pursuing a PhD in the first place, when I first figured out what a PhD was, I decided on a whim to reach out to this one woman who was doing amazing work. Her name is Hannah Wallach. And she was just like this wonderful, powerful woman in AI ethics that I really, really looked up to. And I just cold emailed her, even though she's insanely busy and well-known. And she responded with like this extensive, like paragraphs of response telling me like, here's the people that I need to be introduced to. Here's how I could get involved in a PhD program. Here's like advice that she gives me. And I totally forgot that I did that until I was looking back a few weeks ago at that email thread from when I was in my undergrad. And I realized that, um, that that initial conversation manifested like three years later in this internship because she's going to be my manager in this internship. And I actually haven't told her yet about that email thread because I seriously doubt that she remembers it considering how many emails she has to go through every single day. But at some point this summer, I'm going to bring it up to her and I'll, I'll let her know that she changed my life. <laughs> that is so awesome. I, I totally love that. Now, can you talk a little bit about your podcast? Yes, thank you for asking. So um, it is true, you can't see it, but I'm talking into a fancy mic, which means I must have a podcast. And it's uh, it's called The Radical AI Podcast. Uh, if you're interested, you can look it up on 
iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or just like any podcatcher, really. I think it's on most of them at this point. And we talk about AI ethics broadly. We try to make our content really accessible. I am the co-host and co-founder. My other co-host, his name is Dylan Doyle. And we've been working on this for about a year now. Um, we we basically originally just wanted to kind of assess the AI ethics space and see what interesting stories were out there. We called it radical because we wanted to try to talk about the things that people were very uncomfortable talking about, but that we needed to talk about. And we wanted to hear about those topics from the people who were being left out of the conversation. So the original mission statement was to talk to people who were being marginalized in the tech community and people who came from vulnerable communities to figure out the work that they were doing to mitigate things like sexism and racism and discrimination and bias in AI systems and to not just talk about them high level and corporate speak um, where we were saying, yes, ethics is important and we should do good, but to actually talk about the things that's, that are really, really hard to talk about and to, to actually navigate like what what is sexism in practice and how do we experience that in our daily lives? How do we perpetuate it unintentionally and how does it persist in our technologies? And the same is true for racism, which has been a very, very important topic that we've dove into quite a bit on our show, especially since we launched right before the reckoning that the U.S. had in June, uh, last June of 2020, when we um, finally decided as a country, I guess, that racism was an issue that we were largely ignoring. And um, that that has been something that's been really vital for us to confront on our podcast, especially since we are both two white hosts of a podcast talking about things like racism to even reckon within ourselves and to to question our own privilege and to interrogate our own privilege. And so again, that that lesson that I learned in Colombia continues to come up again and again in my work and in this podcast, but it's been really, really meaningful and just such an amazing experience so far. And I've been overwhelmed by the support of the AI ethics community and the responsible tech community. And so, um, yeah, if anybody's interested in topics regarding technology and its impact on humans and vice versa, definitely go check it out. That sounds very interesting. And and even just like how you plugged it, like it's, it's not just like, oh, we're going to talk about technology and be kind of boring. And <laughs> which I, I feel like is a like fear of, of technology when it comes to it. Um, and I'll be sure to leave a link to your main website in the description of this episode to help people get to you. What is the coolest thing that you have done this past year with the podcast? Ooh, that is a good question. I feel like you're not supposed to have favorites, but I'm asking you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the coolest thing... I would say the coolest thing for me has probably been hiring interns. Um, yeah, especially because just for like full disclosure, me and my co-host have not made a dime off of our podcast. We uh, for a long time, we were actually working in debt because we just put our own money in and just kind of let it be. And we weren't really looking for ways to make money for a while. And then eventually we were like, okay, maybe we should try to pay ourselves back. And so we were able to land a contract and some grant money and pay ourselves back. And then we had a little bit of extra money um, that we decided we actually weren't going to use on ourselves, but we kind of wanted to 
to give back to the community a little bit. And we decided to hire two interns to work with us. And that um, the reason why I say it's so cool is less because we were like able to financially and more because I have always been the one who's been the intern <clears throat> historically. Like I have always been the person who was being interviewed and putting in an application and then being in meetings with managers who are managing me and my projects. And this is the first time in my life that that's been flipped. And I was the one reading the applications and deciding on who was going to be the final uh, intern or the final two interns that we decided. And now I'm the one who's managing the meetings with, with Dylan for these projects that the interns are working on. And feeling what it's like to be on the other side. Uh, I have a lot more empathy for people <laughs> on the managerial side of things and people who hire interns now first. But uh, I think it's it's also just been a really, really big growing experience for me. And I've just been really energized by the amount of things that I have learned from the interns and the amount that I have grown since the beginning of this. And, you know, it's true what they say about teachers that, the, the teachers learn more from the students sometimes than the students do from the teachers. And I think the same has been true here. It's It's been really amazing. And, and again, it's just been such a cool opportunity. It sounds like a very cool opportunity. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Now, before we wrap up, I do want to hear about paragliding and how you got into doing that and becoming a teacher. Yes. So I, I'll, um, I'll just clarify. I'm, I'm not a paragliding teacher, but I am paragliding certified. Um, very, very different. I have a long ways to go before I'd be even like capable of teaching paragliding. But I started because my dad has been paragliding for a really long time. And um, because of that, he actually got my oldest brother again. Wow, he keeps coming up so much in this conversation. He got Wesley involved in paragliding too. And then Wesley got my other brother, Eric, involved in paragliding. And it became kind of like a family sport, um, which was, it was honestly pretty beautiful the way that it happened. It was like each of us, as we were struggling with various things in our lives, we're able to use paragliding as an outlet to work through some of those things. And so in a way, paragliding kind of uh, saved us in a lot of ways because it, it just became this really amazing outlet for um, energy and also just like positive mental health. And so it was a little bit upsetting that right after I got my certification, um, about a week after I got my certification, my father had a very bad paragliding accident and he fell about 150 feet from the sky. His wing did not um, inflate when it was supposed to. And he broke his back. And we were lucky that he just broke his back because a fall like that usually would kill someone. And so after his accident as a family, because we all flew, we were deciding if we should continue to fly or not. And for a little while, none of us did um, because it was very traumatic. And every time I was trying to fly, I would cry. And so for a while there, we thought that it was uh, not going to be a sport for our family anymore. And then um, after some time passed and after my brother Wesley moved back to Columbia because there's amazing paragliding there, we all kind of slowly started to pick it up again. And now we are all back at it much more safe than we were before and trying to be um, more safe in the future and working together to make sure that we uh, keep up with all of the 
the things that we need to know as paragliding pilots to be safe, but also understanding that it's a risky sport. And, um, you know, a lot of people, even if they're being incredibly safe and even if they know all of the technical book smart things that you need to know to never have an accident, wind is is wind and air is air and it's going to do what it wants at the end of the day and so sometimes things happen and it's not even your fault and people die all the time doing this sport and so um it's it's sort of a risk that we've recognized as a family and it's it's really difficult sometimes to to think about the possibility that all of us are risking our lives regularly through this sport and to think if that's something that we actually want to do as a family but um I I think I in a documentary that I was watching a little while ago about Alex Honnold, the free solo climber, um, his mom mentioned at one point that she could never ask him to stop doing what he's doing because she knows that that gives him life. And to, and to ask him to stop doing what gives him life would be such a disservice to the life that he's trying to live, even if it's cut short by doing what he's doing. And so that sort of resonated with me. And I think that's what my family thinks about the sport now is even though it is a risk that we all take, it gives us life and we love it. And so how could we ever ask each other to not do it if it's what's at the end of the day, sometimes keeping us alive? Yeah, well, I really appreciate you sharing that story. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? No, I, I think... I think that that'll probably do it. Yeah, I, I feel like I've rambled about so many different things on this show, but I think that's pretty encompassing of my life. It kind of runs in a lot of different, very wacky directions. So uh, hopefully this gives a little bit of an idea as who I am, of who I am as a person and, and the things that I spend my days doing. Yeah, and it's been absolutely great. Now, with all of my guests, I always wrap it up with a different random off-the-wall sort of question. So my question for you is, is there something that you have tried that you like did once or twice and absolutely can't wait until you get a chance to do it again? So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flub a little bit because I've done this more than once or twice. I've probably done this like a handful of times. But have you ever heard of ecstatic dancing? I have not. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> awesome. So uh, it's pretty much what it sounds like. It is uh, a form of dancing that is pretty much whatever you want it to be. And it's meant to be a dance that heals. It's not meant to be like a dance that you would do in the club. People who go to it are supposed to be sober. You're not supposed to have alcohol or drugs in your system. It's like a family-friendly event. And it's basically a several hour experience where the DJ curates music to start off really gently and calmly. So you can kind of the dance at that point is sort of just stretching and slow movements. And then as the music gets more primal and sped up, people just start doing whatever feels good in their body. And sometimes that's screaming. Sometimes that's like jumping around as fast as you can or rolling on the floor or contact improv or whatever feels right. And then the music slowly dies down and subsides and you end with this meditation where you're laying on the ground and you're just sort of soaking in all of the healing that you've done 
for your body. And if anyone is curious at all in this kind of thing, I highly recommend it. It's becoming more and more normal um, in the U.S. Once things start to open up, I'm sure there will be a lot of it in different cities. Uh, but that that is something I cannot wait to do again once COVID starts to become a little bit more manageable because it is such an amazing experience to just not care at all what other people think about you and not care at all what you look like and just do what feels good in your body surrounded by wonderful, loving people. <laughs> so that, that is something I would definitely recommend. All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I will be leaving the link to the website for the Radical AI podcast in the description. And I will also be leaving Jess's Twitter and LinkedIn handles as well. So if you want to connect with her, feel free to check those out. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. So that will take you to all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, the email is there and I would love to hear you and hear your story. And I think that's it. So thank you so much, Jess, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next week, bye. Thank you so much for having me. It has been so nice to wax poetic about my life experiences. And I hope they've been interesting for uh, some of you who are listening. Goodbye. <laughs>